Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into this uh, special topic of mercy. We are in the spiritual works of mercy. We spent quite some time going through the corporal works of mercy in our time together last week. We got as far as, well, the first spiritual work of mercy, admonishing the sinner. So this evening we hope to get through more than just one uh, spiritual work of mercy, but we'll just let the Spirit lead. And uh, before I start, just let me continue to welcome all of you who are tuning in by way of podcast, not only in the state of California and the United States of California, but also um, across the world in the countries of Portugal, France, Spain, uh, Italy. Uh, I know there are some of you listening in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Canada. It really is an honor that you are Uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to join me to reflect into the richness of the Christian and Catholic faith. And of course, this evening, the richness of this call we have to enter deeper into this great topic of mercy. You know, someone asked me the other day, Joe, in one sentence, how would you define mercy? Well, my dear friends, mercy simply is love when it meets suffering, love when it meets poverty, right? Now, what do you mean by poverty? Well, it's just not material poverty, but also spiritual poverty. So the corporal works of mercy serve material poverty, and in so many ways, the spiritual works of mercy serve spiritual poverty. So um, this is what we're about here on Wednesday evening right now, these spiritual works of mercy. And so with that, let us jump right into this second spiritual work of mercy, instructing the ignorance. So the first spiritual work of mercy was admonishing the sinner, and the second, instructing the ignorant. Now, the word instruct comes from the Latin instruere, right, which means to build up, or even more literally, to pile up. In English, there's also the notion of strewing something. So, for example, to strew hay, or, or to say that the seed has been strewn. Thus, to instruct means to disperse knowledge or build someone up in what is learned. Huh? These days, the word ignorant is most often used in a negative or pejorative sense. And thus to say that someone is ignorant usually means that he is stupid or foolish, at least in contemporary terms. But more literally, and much less pejoratively, <laughs> the word simply refers to someone who does not know something. And while some ignorance can be said to be inexcusable and that a person should know better, it can also be much more innocent. That one simply does not happen to know something and can benefit from instruction in that matter. And this is what is meant by the spiritual work of mercy, instruct the ignorant. Could we not say that all of us can benefit from proper instruction by those who know more about a certain subject or issue than we do? And while it is a work of mercy when someone takes the time to instruct us, it is even a greater work of mercy when the knowledge conferred 
is something essential towards saving us. Maybe some of you out there have a spiritual director that you are most grateful for. Well, you are probably most grateful for them because they are instructing your ignorance. And again, not in this demeaning way, but just simply in that context of helping you to better know something about the Catholic faith, right? Helping you to better know more about yourself. Helping you to better know what it means to live as a Christian and as a Catholic. I know in my own personal journey of faith and the spiritual directors and mentors that I've had, I am extremely grateful for them because they have simply helped me know what I didn't know before. (laughs) Now, in speaking of instructing the ignorant as a spiritual work of mercy, at least two things in principle are meant. First, because the intellect is a faculty of the soul, our human spirit is nourished by all instruction. And second, and more specifically, the church has in mind the kind of instruction that most benefits the soul. Instruction in religious truth rooted in the Holy Scriptures and in the sacred tradition of the teachings of the church. I mean, if secular instruction can benefit us unto worldly ends, my friends, how much greater the benefits of religious instruction that has heavenly and eternal rewards. The goal of religious instruction is always to place one into a living, saving relationship with Jesus Christ, a living, saving relationship with God. And thus, the goal is not to simply help people know about the Lord, but to know the Lord, and by that relationship with Him in the truth, ultimately to be saved. You know, it's interesting, as the observation has been made by others, Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms, goes on for 176 verses, doing what? (laughs) Praising the glory of God's truth, which is more precious than gold, many times refined. Beautiful. Beautiful. What's more, we should add, This work of mercy also brings to light this great emphasis from the church on the need for parents to be equipped for the role as the primary educators of their children, huh? One of the exciting things today is that we are seeing an exponential rise in effective catechetical programs that are strengthening parents in their formation. What is so essential today is for parents to hand on the saving truths of the faith to their children. What is that great passage that comes to us from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. If you are a parent out there, listen to this verse again. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You see, my dear friends, instructing the ignorant, if it is as we have described it, instructing someone in something they do not know, how many things do our children not know? Are we instructing them? Are we instructing them? We have a great responsibility as parents to guide our children into the heart of Jesus Christ. So, instructing the ignorant is a great and wonderful spiritual work of mercy whereby souls are saved. The knowledge of God has an unestimable value on the soul. Okay, 
With that, let us turn our attention to the third spiritual work of mercy, counseling the doubtful. Now, at first glance, (laughs) counseling the doubtful may seem rather similar to instructing the ignorant. However, teaching has learning as its goal, while counseling aims to assist with making right decisions. Certainly, giving counsel often includes some aspects of teaching, such as providing information and perspective, but its primary purpose is to assist a person in coming to a decision. This distinction can actually be found in the root meaning of the word counsel. The English word counsel comes from the Latin concilium. Con, of course, translates as with, and cilium as a decision. So to counsel means to assist someone in the act of deciding. Now that makes sense because why do you go to a counselor? You go to a counselor because you are in the act of deciding. I just spoke to being grateful for our spiritual directors and how they help us to know something we didn't know before. But really, spiritual direction has a lot more to do with counseling uh, the doubtful in the light of what the word itself means. huh? Now, counsel is also connected to the virtue of prudence. Prudence is that virtue which directs particular human acts toward a good end. In modern usage, uh, prudence, and by extension, counsel, right, has often been equated with, with what? Caution. Prudence is not caution, but the virtue that sees the best way forward given the goals in mind. Prudence, by its very definition, is about being sagacious, acutely aware of the kind of long-term impact your decision has on yourself and the people around you. So while it is true that both prudence and counsel would avoid rash decisions until things have been properly considered, the prudent response to a situation is not always the cautious one, per se, because sometimes the prudent thing to do involves a bold or zealous response. Now, since we are speaking of counseling the doubtful as a spiritual work of mercy, the goal in this case refers to that which is moral, and rooted in our final end of holiness and salvation. So the work of giving counsel does not mean just counseling the skeptic. While a doubtful person may be skeptical of certain truths, the doubt we speak of again is more about bringing a person to make a sound decision. Here again, the Latin might help us. The word doubt comes from the Latin dubious, meaning uncertain. However, and even more deeply, the word has its roots in the Latin word duo, which means two. So the Latin word dubium is a choice between two things, and thus the doubtful are the undecided, those of two minds on a certain matter, we could say, or as it has been said, being double-minded. So this spiritual work of mercy is a work that helps the undecided, or those of two minds on something, to come to a good and upright decision rooted in this call to holiness and rooted in this goal we ought to have of attaining heaven by God's grace. We should really start to see and appreciate how these spiritual works of mercy, as we have been talking about them, very much apply to that word poverty, that word that we open up with, right? Because if the word poverty literally means without something, then you can certainly appreciate 
what these spiritual works of mercy are about, filling us up with the stuff of God. My dear friends, what a beautiful work of mercy it is to help better orient others toward their heavenly goal by assisting them in choosing the most virtuous and holiest way forward in a difficult or puzzling situation. What a beautiful work of mercy it is. Now, if we are to be equipped to provide this beautiful work of mercy, we must first be docile to the will and mind of God. huh? We must be well instructed in heavenly wisdom, which is so often uh, paradoxical to the worldly-minded. The capacity to give spiritual counsel grows out of a deep prayer life. I would be remiss if I did not speak to this, huh? placing too much of an emphasis on what we need to do versus how we need to prepare ourselves. So the capacity to give spiritual counsel grows out of a deep prayer life. All of the corporal and spiritual works of mercy are a natural outgrowth of a deep prayer life, are a natural outgrowth of the study of Scripture and the experience of living as a faithful Christian in the world. St. Paul gives us some wise counsel to those of us who might be striving to accomplish this spiritual work of mercy. What does he say in his letter to Titus, chapter 2, verse 1, verses 7 to 8? And as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Listen to those words, purity in doctrine. Remember what the word purity means, without mixture, single-hearted, if you will, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. Huh? Are your words dignified? Are you sound in what you are saying? Are you speaking clearly? So, my friends, we ought to regard at the highest level the importance of being counseled and counseling others, that we might become more deeply rooted in the decision to follow Jesus, to choose the Lord and the things awaiting in heaven, to leave behind uh, double-minded ways and duplicity, to decide for what is true, good, and beautiful. You know, over recent years, the phrase, what would Jesus do, has been a growing tagline in our decision-making. My question is, are you formed to know enough to determine what Jesus would do? It really is important that we have someone we can turn to to help us journey in our decision-making so that we might better understand what Jesus would do in this moment and that moment. Huh? This really does encourage us to um, get a spiritual director. Huh? You have heard me talk about this before. Benedict XVI once said, if you are serious about holiness, you will have a spiritual director. So clearly, this third spiritual work of mercy is very, very important. Okay, so how about this fourth spiritual work of mercy, comfort the sorrowful? A spiritual work of mercy that has also been called comfort the afflicted. First, and foremost, let us say this. Comforting the sorrowful requires the greatest patience, sensitivity, and also silence. This is because sorrow or grief 
often has a life and logic of its own, does it not? It just has to run its course, if you will. Often there is very little a person can say when grief is present. What does St. Paul tell us to do in Romans chapter 12, verse 15? Weep with those who weep. So it is, we do exactly that. St. Augustine once observed that sighs and tears and prayer often accomplish more than words. And so it is that when people are sorrowful, their grief and tears are their prayer. And we do well to honor that. Rather than to say, uh, don't be sad or cheer up. I mean, that just doesn't fly. And I think a lot of you out there know that. A largely silent and respectful silence can be and often is a way of honoring grief, which really does signal a true uh, camaraderie, a true camaraderie. Now, if one notices a person getting stuck in his grief, not making the progress or, or moving through their grief in stages, yes, more will be needed, but not right away. People need time and room to grieve. Some take longer than others, and there is no single right way to grieve. To comfort and consult requires a sensitivity on our part that seeks to discover what the person needs on his terms, not ours. Now again, if there are signs of true depression or a serious lack of progress, this may be an indication that we should become more active in our comforting and, console and consoling, perhaps getting the person out for activities or even recommending professional help. But again, let patience instruct you. Now, the word comfort in terms of its older root meaning involves something more vigorously than merely just giving comfort. The Latin uh, roots are cum and fortis, huh? with and strong. Thus, to comfort someone in its older etymological roots means to strengthen him. And in this sense, the word comfort is better paired with the other traditional rendering of this spiritual work of mercy, comfort the afflicted. Here too, afflicted in its Latin roots means to be struck down, to be weakened, or to be injured. And thus, the spiritual work, comfort the afflicted, becomes more vigorous in its meaning, does it not? Here is a person who has been struck down, weakened, or ridiculed. To comfort him means, in the more literal sense, to do what? Restore him to strength. To enable him to persevere, to summon him to the courage that strongly resists those who would seek to render him weak or ineffective. This then, again, is the vigorous understanding of the fourth spiritual work of mercy, comfort the sorrowful. So it makes sense why this fourth spiritual work of mercy might have uh, two names to it, <laughs> comfort the sorrowful and comfort the afflicted. In either sense, this is a work of mercy that is restorative of a brother or sister to the normal Christian state of being joyful, confident, strong, right? Are we not to build one another up as brothers and sisters in Christ? For all of our corporal and spiritual works of mercy, let 1 Corinthians 3, 5 uh, lead the way. This call we have to be 
co-workers to build one another up. All right, moving along here this evening. How about the fifth spiritual work of mercy? Bear wrongs patiently. Here is perhaps, as some have suggested, the most revolutionary of the spiritual works of mercy. It is the one tied most directly to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To decide to bear wrongs patiently is nothing less than to declare a revolution and to wage a very paradoxical counteroffensive, if you will, against this world and its economy of anger. Brothers and sisters, there is a cycle of violence and retribution in which the devil seeks to engage us, is there not? The cycle begins with one person harming or slighting another, perhaps tempted to do so by the devil or by the world or flesh, manipulated by him. And then, the harm having been worked, the victim does what? Retaliates. And then what happens? The problem escalates. Meanwhile, Satan observes from the wings with delight as he reaps a bountiful harvest of anger, fear, bitterness, and violence. What is the outcome? He destroys friendships, families, cultures, and even nations. This is Satan's economy, an economy that has as its currency hatred and revenge. He would have us develop grievances and fears and fill our coffers with memories of past wrongs, stretching back days, months, years, as far as our memory can take us. So clever are Satan's minions <laughs> that those who are consumers and suppliers think their vengeance is righteous and to some extent even holy. And so the economy of Satan grows and grows, fueled by vengeance bankrolled by grievances. Now, into this economy, this cycle of violence and retribution, the Christian who bears wrongs patiently engages in the revolutionary act of saying, even if on a small scale, the cycle of violence, anger, and retribution ends with me. Ends with me. Even if it is just the bearing of very small wrongs. It slows down the machine of hatred and retribution and causes the economy of Satan to grind ever so slowly. The person who does this, my friends, engages in a revolutionary act, a paradoxical act of sabotage. And is this not the same paradox we see on the cross where Christ one by bearing patiently and bravely the venom, hatred, and violence of this world to the end. He bore it by not retaliating, not hating, but loving and enduring unto the end. Every Christian who bears wrongs patiently increases the size of the cross by the fact that Christ unites our suffering to his. Note the logic of this revolution. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. Pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. And thus Jesus and every Christian who bears wrongs patiently drives out darkness by light, hatred by love, and pride by humility. 
Now, I suppose the question to be asked is such a stance to be absolute. Must we bear every wrong patiently? No. There are times when we must defend ourselves and others, when the only way to repel the grave harm caused by a serious injustice is to disable it and remove it. There are times when we must actively resist the devil and stand in evil's ways. But in all this, retaliation is not our goal. Rather, our goal is justice established in love and respect with a desire to end the cycle, not merely to continue it as the victor. Essentially, my friends, evil is to be resisted and robbed of further prey. If I seek to conquer and destroy evil, too easily I can become the very evil I seek to destroy. Even as I declare my victory, the evil still lives to strike another day, does it not? So the cycle ends, and it ends when we bear wrongs patiently. The Christian who bears wrongs patiently says, in effect, it ends with me. I will take the blow like my Savior on the cross, but I will not return it. This does not make me spineless. It makes me courageous. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other? Many interpret this passage as weakness. It is not. It is revolutionary and strong. In effect, the one who turns the other cheek looks the perpetrator in the eye. He does not flee in fear. He refuses to enter into the world of the perpetrator, into the economy of hatred. He stands his ground, neither fleeing in fear nor losing by becoming like his enemy and retaliating. He remains himself, drawing his dignity not from the praise of men, but from the Lord. Is this person weak? Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. Was Jesus weak on the cross? Brothers and sisters, in the end, to bear wrongs patiently is to declare a revolution against Satan's regime, to break the cycle of his economy and say, the cycle of violence and revenge ends with me. And my dear friends, if you are about to lose your patience with someone, maybe it might help to think about how God has been so patient with you. This has certainly helped me trying to live out this oh-so-difficult spiritual work of mercy. Mm. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock, and oh, time just disappeared this evening. We're out of time, uh, but not before getting through a number of spiritual works of mercy. So if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, observations, um, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. Or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. That's spelled J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. 
If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.